Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, we interview Brandeis University History and African-American Studies professor Chad Williams. His latest book, The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War, was published by Farrar, Strauss, and Garreau in April of this year. So I asked Chad Williams why he chose to write this book, since so much has already been written, including David Levering Lewis's highly regarded two-volume biography about this prolific African-American historian, NAACP co-founder, and Crisis magazine editor. The inspiration for my book, The Wounded World, was my discovery of an 800-page manuscript by W.B. Du Bois on the Black experience in the First World War that no one had written about. No one? No one had written about it at any significant length. Certainly David Levering Lewis had mentioned it in his biography, but it had remained completely unexplored. And even David Levering Lewis himself wanted to know the mystery behind why (laughs) Du Bois's uh, massive tome, his massive World War I history remained unfinished and unpublished. So when I discovered this manuscript, when I was doing research for what would become my first book, Torchbearers of Democracy, I was immediately captivated and wanted to know more about it and ultimately wanted to tell the story of why Du Bois didn't finish what would have been one of his most significant works of history, Mm -hmm. but also what it tells us about Du Bois, his life, his work, his intellectual and political development, as well as the significance of World War I to the broader struggles for freedom and democracy for Black people in the 20th century. You present Du Bois in all his complexities by focusing on his efforts to document what he called the wounded world and World War I. So in Du Bois's eyes, what did this wounded world look like? It's such an evocative title. He, he titled his book, The Black Man and the Wounded World. So my book is inspired by the title of his book. And that was a title that ultimately evolved. He came to see the World War and the legacies of the World War as a tragedy and saw the world that he was living in, the world that Black people were living in uh, by the 1920s and certainly continuing into the 1930s as deeply wounded by the trauma of the war. So I think it's really a a profound question that Du Bois was trying to explore, uh, one that he ultimately didn't finish exploring. What does it mean to live in a wounded world? And how do we reckon with the traumas, the violence, the horrors of of white supremacy, of war, and its uh, legacies in our lives? You say you didn't know about this book project before you started this. So how did you come across this information? I was a graduate student at the time and was doing research at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where Du Bois's papers, the bulk of his papers, are located. 
and I had seen a reference to Du Bois World War I materials. And I quite honestly didn't know what it was. I didn't expect much. I went to the special collections department, asked the reference librarian to see these Du Bois World War I materials. And to my surprise and shock, I was given six microfilm reels. And as I started exploring the microfilm reels, this incredible manuscript unfolded before my eyes. Mm. In addition to the manuscript, all of Du Bois's research materials that he compiled over two decades and all the correspondence related to this project. So it was really just an incredible archive that I literally stumbled upon. It was one of those dream graduate student moments. <laughs> and I, I've really been immersed in, and captivated in it ever since. Excellent. Now, you know, obviously, Du Bois left behind a massive collection of papers that are housed in the library that is actually named in his honor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. So given the volume of materials there, how did you start conducting your research? And then how did you organize it? So I initially started making my way through the microfilm, but the original materials are located at Fisk University in Tennessee. Mm. So I had the opportunity to do research at Fisk in their incredible special collections department and was able to see the manuscript firsthand, to be able to touch it, to see how Du Bois worked on it over such a long period of time, to see the, the fading paper, to see where he was cutting and pasting. It was really just an incredibly sensory experience to go through Du Bois's manuscript, to see how it evolved over the years, to see just the incredible amounts of research that he compiled, newspaper clippings, letters and diaries from soldiers, photographs, rare military documents, just a really unrivaled archive. And then to, to try and make sense of it all, to try and understand this project as Du Bois envisioned it, um, mm -hmm. to see the ways in which it evolved in the context of Du Bois's life, uh, but also in the larger context of African-American history in the 20th century. But that's a lot of material to organize. How did you really approach it? I mean, what, he worked on this for a good 20 years? Yes. And you're talking about not just documents that he personally, say, went overseas and was able to collect, but he talked to and got information from Black servicemen themselves. How do you go through all of that material and make it make sense? Very slowly and over a long <laughs> period of time. <laughs> this book certainly took me uh, a long time to finish, in part because of the enormity of the archive itself, the enormity of trying to understand someone like Du Bois, who was so complex, uh, who was so multi-layered, but also the challenge of understanding Du Bois and a project that he didn't finish. When we think of Du Bois, we really tend to think of him as this monumental figure who in some ways, at least in terms of his intellectual life, could do no wrong. Right. And here is this incredible book, which I'm convinced would have been one of his most significant works of history that he never finished. It really caused me to think of what would it mean to consider Du Bois in the context of failure. Mm. Uh, and that ultimately proved to be very generative, to think about the ways in which Du Bois struggled with his own personal place in the war, struggled to make sense of the war as a historical moment. 
but then also had to reckon with the failure of the war itself and his initial support for it. So really trying to make sense of all of these, these different issues and to make sense of Du Bois himself was really one of the biggest challenges of writing this book and making sense of the enormity of his writings and his archive. So how did you arrive at deciding that you're going to divide the book into three distinct sections? Hope is the first section, then disillusion, and then failure. I really wanted to tell the story behind this book and to really think about it almost cinematically, to think about what are the different stages, what are the different acts, uh, if you will, in the, the story, the drama behind this book. To think of it first in terms of hope, because Du Bois was incredibly hopeful about what the war could pretend for African-Americans, uh, for peoples of African descent more broadly, the genuine hopes that he had for the war as a transformative moment in the history of democracy for Black people. Eventually, those hopes are dashed when he goes to France and he sees firsthand the destruction of the war. He talks to Black soldiers and veterans and hears there are incredibly painful stories of discrimination and abuse that they receive. This coming right before the Red Summer of 1919. What was the Red Summer of 1919? James Weldon Johnson, one of Du Bois's colleagues at the NAACP, uh, author, playwright, politician, diplomat, one of the most remarkable individuals in, in American history, described horrific racial violence in the summer of 1919 as the, the Red Summer, when Black people experienced uh, race riots, massacres, pogroms from Washington, D.C. to Chicago to Arkansas. Uh, the number of lynchings skyrocketed. Black veterans were being attacked. Uh, several were, were, were lynched, uh, even in their uniforms. So it was just an incredibly violent and and shocking period for Du Bois, who described it, in his words, as a period of unexpected reaction. Uh, the hopes that African-Americans would have returning from France, uh, from their heroic uh, service in the war to a bloodbath was something that unsettled Du Bois uh, to his core. Right. So his disillusionment with the war begins to grow in the immediate aftermath of the war and certainly through the 1920s. And by the 1930s, he really has to reckon with the failure of the war as a second world war is approaching. And he also has to reckon with his own failure to finish the black man and the wounded world. So I wanted to, to kind of trace that evolution and to hopefully have my readers kind of see the larger story and drama behind this really remarkable history. You know, what was also discouraging was the fact that so many of the servicemen did support him by providing letters and photographs and maps of their time in the war. And two men in particular were really trying to get him <laughs> to recognize that one, they had sent their original documentation to him in good faith. And he kept saying, yes, I'm going to use it and I'll get it back to you. And he never did. Or at least, let me ask you, did he ever return any of those items to those particular servicemen? He was forced to return some of them to one serviceman who threatened to take him to court. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> but for most of the Black veterans who 
instilled in Du Bois their hopes, their historical visions for their experiences in the war, who saw Du Bois as their voice, as their spokesperson, he did not return their materials. Why? Um, Why was it? Du Bois had an incredibly large ego. Uh, (laughs) He believed that the history of the war was his to write and ultimately his alone. He felt that he was singularly endowed to write the official history of the war and that no one can do it better than him. And ultimately, all the work, the labor uh, that was going to go into writing this history uh, was going to be credited to him. So even though dozens and dozens and dozens of Black soldiers and veterans uh, gave Du Bois their personal materials, letters, uh, diaries, rare photographs, all types of of different uh, information, he held on to all of these materials believing that one day he was going to finish this book. And really, that's part of the tragedy, part of the failure um, Mm. of this story, that Du Bois didn't live up to his end of the bargain Mm -hmm. uh, when it came to representing the history of these men. And to this day, many of their materials are still sitting in an archive at Fisk University. I think it raises a lot of very complicated and moral, even ethical questions concerning Du Bois and the archive itself. Absolutely. But, you know, he did ask for graduate student support to help with the research end of it from several universities. So, one, I was surprised that he didn't go back to his alma mater, Fisk University, and say, hey, (laughs) you know, can I get some student help? Or even a larger HBCU like Howard University. So do you know why he didn't get that graduate student support? I think in part it speaks to Du Bois's own training as a, a product of Harvard University, as a product of the University of Berlin. He had a particular vision for the type of students uh, that he felt were adequately qualified to help him with this project. Uh, mm-hmm. They needed to be college educated you know, at a predominantly white institution. He did seek support from the librarian at Howard University, Edward Williams. He may have also received uh, some secretarial assistance when he was at uh, Atlanta University. But again, I think it it speaks largely to how Du Bois envisioned this project and also how he thought about history as a discipline, as a science, and the training that was necessary in order to be an effective historian. And almost some elitism there. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Definitely. Now, he was a world traveler and he went to France and Germany early on when he started work on the book. And then, of course, just travel all over the world as he worked on other projects. Did you get a chance to travel to any of the places where he conducted research to look at any archival sources there? So I initially conducted research in France when I was working on my first book. So that did give me an opportunity to spend time in Paris to actually see where Du Bois held the Pan-African Congress in February of 1919. Um, But also just to kind of imagine what it was like for Du Bois to be in Paris at this remarkable moment in 1919, right after the end of the war, during the Versailles Peace Conference, uh, to really be at the center of the future of the world. So that was the extent of my my international research. Uh, Most of my research for this project was 
immersing myself in Du Bois's archive and trying to, to make sense of just the incredible volume of, of materials, both at Fisk University, but also his papers at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Gotcha. And for a man who hated war, the editorial closed ranks that he wrote uh, early on during the World War One uh, years was especially controversial. And it came back to bite him several times during the course of his work on this uh, project. Could you talk a little bit about why that was the case? Closed Ranks was arguably the most controversial editorial of, of Du Bois's career. Uh, in the July 1918 issue of The Crisis, he encouraged African-Americans to set aside their special grievances and to close our ranks with our fellow white Americans and, and the allies. And he was excoriated. He received a torrent of criticism. He was accused of being a traitor to the race. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. for someone like Du Bois, who literally dedicated his life to the service, to the uplift of the race, to representing the race, there was really no accusation that could be more damning than to be accused of, of being a traitor. He believed that the editorial was the right decision at the time. He believed that it was important for African-Americans to demonstrate their loyalty to their country, first and foremost, uh, before they fought for their civil rights, um, put their race uh, ahead of nation. And this was something that really spoke to the tension that Du Bois writes about so eloquently in The Souls of Black Folk, uh, what it means to be Black and what it means to be American, the double consciousness that African-Americans faced. And he felt that by supporting the war, that by encouraging African-Americans to close ranks, that tension would be reconciled. He was wrong. And he had to grapple with the realities of his decision really for the rest of his life. It was something that he was genuinely confused about. And to think about Du Bois as being confused, as really wrestling with a decision like this is, I think, one of the most revelatory aspects of my book. Mm -hmm. And he predicted that there would be another world war. When did he start working on the book specifically? October of 1918 is when, yeah. Okay, so from 1918, and then you get into the 20s, and even by the end of the 20s and into the beginning of the Depression, he's still working on this. Yes. So the closer we get to the start of World War II, he's still trying to figure out how to write about World War One as World War Two is taking off. Absolutely. So the really the seeds of, of World War Two that he witnesses. He travels to Germany. He travels through the Soviet Union. He travels through China and Japan. He sees the storm clouds of World War Two on the horizon, mm -hmm. and this brings a sense of urgency to try uh, to finish writing this book and to use it as a lesson in the, the horrors of modern warfare. Really, as as a last minute warning call to the world that look what happened during this first world war. Look at the wounds that we are still trying to heal. Don't make the same mistake again. And he's not able to get support for finishing the book from funders. And ultimately by 1940, he gives up on completing uh, the black man and the wounded world just as World War II begins. Yeah. Now, let me ask you, what was the writing process for you? Did you proceed chronologically? Did you write whatever information you had at the time? How, how did you deal with that? Well, I wrote this over quite a, a long period of time. Do you want and, to say how long? 
Uh, well, I, I think in earnest, you know, we're talking a good 12, almost 13 years of working this book and the project evolving in different ways. So initially, Du Bois really wasn't at the center of the book when I started working on it. I think I found Du Bois, quite honestly, intimidating. Um, <laughs> other people had written about him, like David Levering Lewis. What could I potentially say that was new about Du Bois? But I soon came to the realization that it's inescapable, that this book has to be about Du Bois, and I have to take him on. Uh, so my writing was kind of all over the place. Um, I gravitated towards parts of the story that really captured my interests, you know, such as Du Bois being in France in 1919, uh, the implications of the Red Summer. And as I began to really think about the larger story, as I continued to immerse myself in Du Bois' work and the archive, uh, really the longer arc of the story became clear, that this was going to be a story that really began in 1914 and stretched through World War II. So that explains the length of the book. <laughs> uh, but I think it, it also kind of speaks to how I was thinking about it in terms of, of my writing that I wanted to approach it as a longer narrative. Mm -hmm. And how did you weave in information about his personal life? Because obviously you talk about his first wife and his daughter and then his second wife. Where did you find that information? And were you able to talk to any surviving relatives of his? I didn't talk to any surviving relatives. Uh, certainly David Levering Lewis's monumental biography of Du Bois was very helpful in that regard. He delves into many aspects of, of Du Bois's uh, personal life. So I didn't want to retread familiar ground and just simply talking about all of Du Bois's personal life, but to think about his personal life in the context of his writing and grappling with the history of the war. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think in that sense, the aspects of his personal life that I do explore in the book are very revelatory and provide a fresh lens uh, into understanding Du Bois's humanity. I really wanted to try and humanize Du Bois in a way that I think uh, many scholars sometimes don't do. Okay. And what's the current status of anybody taking on trying to complete or make sense of all of the voluminous uh, notes and writing that he did on this project? There's, I think, a lot of questions about the Du Bois estate and access and permissions uh, to publishing his unpublished works. So at this moment, there are no plans to, to try and republish either some parts or you know, even the full manuscript. I would certainly love to take that project on, but I think there's some larger questions uh, that need to be uh, resolved first concerning Du Bois's papers, the estate, and granting the permissions. Who is the executor of his estate? Um, the executor of his uh, estate was his grandson, uh, David Du Bois, who passed away several years ago. So uh, the executor of the state is an attorney who resides in, in California. But hopefully some of those questions will, will be resolved because there's a lot of scholars who are eager to really explore all of Du Bois' works, especially those that, that haven't been able to reach the public yet. Right. And it's it's just amazing because wasn't there a scholar earlier on who tried to organize and look at the wounded um, world documents and try to put them into some kind of order? 
Right. So that's another fascinating part of the story that I, I didn't have the, the time and space to tell. I certainly wasn't the first person to, quote unquote, discover these materials. Um, Shirley Graham Du Bois, Du Bois's wife, was very familiar with them. So she contacted Herbert Aptheker, who was the executor of, of Du Bois's papers and who took it upon himself to publish as many of his unpublished works as possible. They also brought in Vincent Harding to explore possibly publishing The Black Man in the Wounded World with Vincent Harding writing an introduction. Uh, and Vincent and, Harding, for those who don't know, is a historian. Absolutely, yeah, a pioneering uh, historian, Institute of the Black World. So when Herbert Aptheker went through the same microfilm reels that I <laughs> looked at uh, at University of Massachusetts, he was overwhelmed by the enormity of the manuscript, the condition that it was in. And it was ultimately a job that was too much for him to tackle. But for decades, it was you know, really sitting at Fisk at, at the University of Massachusetts with no one doing anything with it. So we're talking about archives that are split between Fisk and University of Mass? Right. So Du Bois donated a collection of his papers to Fisk University in 1961, just before he went to Ghana. And that collection is where the Black Man in, in the Wounded World papers are. The majority of his, his papers he left behind and endowed uh, Herbert Aptheker uh, to be in charge of. Uh, and those papers were given to the University of Massachusetts. Uh, there's a smaller collection of Du Bois papers at Yale University. So there's different Du Bois collections kind of located at different universities uh, around the country, but the bulk are at University of Massachusetts Amherst. All right. And then what would you like your readers to take away as the most important element of this study? I would like readers to take away from the book how important World War I was for Du Bois, that we cannot understand Du Bois as a scholar, as an intellectual, as a political figure without centering World War I in his work, in his life, and in his political evolution. Obviously, I want them to know about this incredible book that he devoted so many years of his life to. But ultimately, to, to take away from the book the significance of, of World War I to Du Bois's life and the significance of the war to understanding the ways in which the war shaped African-American history in the 20th century in profound ways and the legacies um, of the war that we're really still reckoning with today, how we can learn from Du Bois's story about the challenges that we still face in our wounded world. All right. I think that's it. Unless there's any recommendations that you would have for fellow biographers. One of the pieces of advice I would give is to approach your subject critically, to not be afraid to, to question them, to not be afraid to be disappointed by them. Um, I still have the deepest of admiration and respect for Du Bois, uh, but I certainly look at him in, in a different way now than when I, I started working on this book. So I think be prepared to be surprised, even disappointed <laughs> in, in the person or, or persons that you're writing about. That was history professor and author Chad Williams speaking with me about his latest book, The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War, published by Farrah, Strauss, and Garreau in April of this year. 
This interview was recorded via Zoom on March 27, 2023. To learn more about Biome or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day. <laughs>